0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. As part of the Works Progress Administration's efforts to give jobs to unemployed Americans in the late 1930s, government workers tracked down 3,000 men and women who had been enslaved before and during the Civil War and asked them questions about what their lives had been like. Those interviews have come to be known as the Slave Narratives. City Files Press recently published excerpts and photographs from about 100 of those narratives in a book edited by Richard Cahan and Michael Williams under the title River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It, and Richard Cahan joins us now. Welcome to our show.
1: Thank you so much, Leonard.
0: You and and Michael Williams are photo historians. What, What does that mean, especially in the context of this book?
1: Yeah, it's a term that that we had never heard of before we were called that. Um we're we're really journalists uh, by background, but we've written a series of between 5 and 10 books that are basically on history, but they're primarily driven by photographs. We we explain every photograph, we put them in context, but uh, the the photos predominate the book and uh, and I think that's why people are are calling it that. Uh, it's it's an age where um, photography and images are getting to be more and more important and i think people are recognizing that.
0: And so you have a book on Vivian Mayer, the uh the recently discovered great photographer, but also one called Un-American, which is a look at government photographs taken of the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War 2 by Dorothea Lange and, and other photographers. And that's kind of uh, a kindred spirit to this book.
1: Absolutely. Um it's 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 a look at um it's a look at a subject that people have heard about and read about, but they really haven't ever seen. And I think that the key to this book, we did not, we did not discover these narratives. uh, We did not rediscover the narratives, but we're putting them in a different light by showing excerpts from the narratives, the accounts, the first person accounts from formerly enslaved men and women with photo portraits of them. So how did this, yeah, the power of the, the pictures and the words seem to be really compelling.
0: So how did this come about? Was the, the Federal Writers Project, which was a branch of the WPA, intended as just a Depression-era jobs program, or was it seen as something more historically significant at the time? Uh, well, I
1: think at all, the time, it, 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 decades... a little bit of both. Um, the it, it was a time where people needed jobs, and there were a lot of out-of-work newspaper people and writers and and history professors. And so the government thought it was a good time to uh, gather them together and create work that would be lost. And I think their, their most important work was, um, finding and tracking down about 3000 formerly enslaved, uh, people and interviewing them. And about 300 of them were photographed.
0: And, uh, haven't the, the photographs taken for the slave narrative collection been largely overlooked and uh, negatives missing and there are also impressions of the paper clips that we use to attach the small yeah. prints to, type, to typewritten interviews, which would suggest that they weren't taken all that seriously?
1: That's exactly right. Um, the negatives are long gone and the only thing that was left were really small prints that were taken by the interviewers after the interviews and usually, it, usually they talked I think for about an hour. It looks like the transcripts are usually 10 or 20 pages long and uh, apparently uh, at the end of that hour uh, they would take out a camera and they said, do you mind if I take your picture and, uh, and the photographs were taken. And the pictures have been used occasionally in historic texts that talk about the narratives, the, 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 the textual narratives, but they're never connected you know, this book shows 96, you see the words on one page and you see the pictures on the other page. And, and that's never been done before.
0: And the photographs are rather powerful, I guess just they because are. they're so direct.
1: They are. You know, they have, a, they have a snapshot quality about them because they weren't taken by Dorothea Lang or mm-hmm. a professional photographer. They were just simply taken by the person that interviewed them. Um, but just like snapshots have a certain power, you know, you, you, you probably have pictures of your family going back, you know, generations. And the studio portraits are important but it's the snapshots that really make you smile, that bring you that, that that have an authenticity of what it was like when you were young or what your family was like, and it's the same thing here. Um, there's not a lot of artifice. Pretty much, you know, a, a person would lean back in his rocking chair or stand next to the uh, the house, the the, the 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 clapboard house that he was living at. One woman actually posed in the middle of her blowing sheets <laughs> on the line. And um, the pictures are really powerful. You get the, a sense of, of how difficult life was for these people and how they pers- persevered. You know, they're, they're all in their, this happened seven decades after the end of the Civil War. It was t- happened in 1937 and 38, And so these people are at least 70 years old or 75 years old. And most were in their 80s and many were in their 90s and a few in their 100s.
0: And you get the feeling that some of them said, wait, let me go back into the house and uh, put on yeah. something that, that really nice, <laughs> a exactly. nice jacket uh, or exactly. a nice dress. Uh, even the,
1: yeah, even though it was spontaneous, it, it appears that they knew just, just like they knew, not that they knew what to say, but they knew that this was a really important moment in their lives and they wanted to give the best impression as well they should.
0: And we're talking, as you said, uh, of something happening seven decades after the Emancipation Proclamation. So most of them knew that they weren't going to live all that much longer. Sure. But uh, hadn't uh, there been earlier attempts? Didn't the the collecting of these oral histories begin on a small scale when uh, a historian, Lawrence Reddick, convinced the Roosevelt administration to give him and and 12 black college students a grant to interview uh, 250 formerly enslaved people? That, right, it, it started, that comes it across started as in the late 20s project. and the early 30s. I'm sorry, go ahead. That comes across as a, a rather troubled project.
1: Well, it was done, you know, out of a college. It was done by college students, so you have problems of that. And, um, and you know, this was, I think what it did is it set the vision, you know, that, 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 that it was worthwhile, that there were, uh, you know, former slaves that were, that were still around. and They wouldn't be around forever because they were obviously elderly, and that what they had to say was important. So it it made the project, you know, it it, it kind of set out the blueprint to the project. But the federal government did a great job here. They created a list of questions to be asked. And, you know, finding 3,000 people was a pretty massive and incredible thing. Uh, Most of the interviewers were white. Many of them, I think the far majority were women. And imagine it's the 1930s and you're, Uh, a former slave and you live in the rural South and all of a sudden a white person knocks on your door and says, I'm interested in gathering your recollections of what life was like during slavery and and, and the years after that. It must have been an incredible moment of culture shock and um, uh, amazingly, or perhaps not amazingly, I think most of the people who were interviewed realized how important this was.
0: On the other hand, wouldn't some of those uh, interviewers have their own biases and prejudices? To, prejudices a- to overcome?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think that um, you know we don't know what would happen if all the interviewers were African American. Um, uh, Adam Green, who is a University of Chicago historian, wrote in the uh, in the foreword of the book that you know that the because of that the the project was you know seemed to be comp- compromised. But but he also used the word it was revelatory. You know, here we were hearing, finding firsthand accounts. And it seems to me, and, and, and that you can tell me what you think, there was the people who were interviewed were you, such candor and and there was such honesty that I can't imagine what more could have been said because they describe in detail incidences of uh, terrorism is really the only word that I can use, you know, violence and and the difficult conditions. It did not seem to me like they shied away. Sometimes they started the interviews by saying, well, it's not easy to talk about this, you know, and, and, and sometimes they talked about violence on a neighbor's, uh, at a neighbor's plantation. And perhaps they really meant violence on their own plantation. It's hard to know, but On the whole, people seemed from the transcripts to be be very comfortable.
0: And yet, even today, there are people who argue that slavery wasn't all that terrible in most cases. uh, It was a civilizing and Christianizing process. People were given food and and, uh, and housing. And Rush Limbaugh, just honored by the president, said if any race should not feel guilty about slavery, it's Caucasians.
1: Well, it runs counter to the words that were, that were uttered during these interviews. Yeah, because, Absolutely counter.
0: Because uh, you have, uh, what, what we get here, the picture that we get here is children were forced to work not long after they were weaned, people were shackled, women were sexually exploited, families were separated. One of the, uh, the people, Bill Homer, says that in 1860, when he was 10, he was given as a wedding present
1: absolutely they were very clear in what they were talking about you know they talked about how they were woken up uh, well before dawn by a by a horn that blew and that they talk about the you know the the cabins and the dirty floors and and food was put in troughs and the houses they, they said the houses were you know like horse stables and they they talked about constant hunger uh, about how <clears throat> excuse me how they weren't allowed to read or write or handle money You know, it's like, um, as as you mentioned, we wrote a book about the incarceration of Japanese Americans. And, you know, you could one could argue, but uh, argue very poorly that uh, Japanese Americans were protected, that they were taken away from their homes so that, you know, that they would be safe. Well, it's a faulty argument. And, um, you know, there are people that deny the Holocaust. It's uh, it's it's the same thing.
0: A few of these people actually uh, were the children of uh, of. People who had been brought from Africa, so yes. it was still within recent memory of some of them.
1: Yeah, so that's the miracle. So some people did recall that their mothers or their grandmothers told stories about, you know, being kidnapped in Africa and taken over on slave ships, and here they're talking to people and being photographed in the 1930s, and we're seeing this, you know, almost 100 years later. So it's uh, so many miracles involved in this.
0: Now. Many describe people being whipped, and one of them revealed that the owner of his plantation whipped three or four enslaved people to death. Yeah. Is that, yeah, we, is that why we, where your title of your book, River of Blood, comes from?
1: Yeah, the, the title comes from one of the women who talked remembering a river of blood uh, as she thinks back at those days, and the, the the word blood came up constantly. Dozens and dozens of former slaves talked about the blood that they witnessed, Um and uh, and it's not as if these stories that we put in the book were outliers. We weren't looking for the worst stories or the most sensational stories at all. Um, these stories were corroborated uh, person after person, and uh, th- these these weren't necessarily um, you know these these were very representative stories.
0: Now uh, I'm talking with uh, Richard Kahn, who uh, along with Michael Williams, has uh, put together a book. A really fascinating book called "River of Blood: American Slavery from the People Who Lived It." It's published by City Files Press, and uh, it's a very uh, handsome book in a way because uh, the photographs are so uh, can be quite beautiful. Also, you have pictures uh, from the plantations and from the 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 living quarters. Uh, I assume they they came to you. You got those things separately.
1: Well, they, they, they come from another government project. Uh, They're the, pictures by Dorothea Lange and um, um, great you know, masters of photography who were sent by the government separately to document the Old South and to photograph uh, the, Hist- the Historic American Building Survey went down and photographed log cabins and outhouses and, mm. and, and even dungeons that were, that were left. Uh, so we combined, we, we used those photographs to set the scene. And then once the scene was set, we let these, these, these people tell their story.
0: I mentioned earlier that, uh, that the, the, then the photographs were not really treated well. Negatives have disappeared. Yeah. You have to wonder why uh, that has, uh, was allowed to happen. If, if uh, this was considered such an important project, uh, do you think that there was, there's also an American impulse not to dwell on the horrors of the past?
1: Well, there is, of course, that uh, somebody recently mentioned that slavery is the one issue that we all nobody wants to talk about what we all want to talk about. It's a very difficult subject. Uh, but I think that the photographs were they weren't forgotten, but they weren't honored. They were disregarded, I would say. And I think it's because it was a project of basically run by word people, academics who wanted to, you know, who, who, who founded these words very important. And I certainly don't disagree with them. But I don't think that they understood the value of the photographs. You know, I, I think that this is uh, – somebody recently told me that, that they're so happy that, that we've helped revive the Slave Narrative Collection, and we've, we've only revived it because we've, we've shown it in the manner that it was actually taken, you know, by showing the photographs. So did you and just, I just think for, you know, for years, photographs have not been – photographs are much more valued
0: now than they used to be. So did you just pick out the – what did you say, 97 best.
1: Yeah, there were, there were 315 people photographed, and we started by picking out the best photographs, and then we went back to each one of the interviews, and we, we picked out what we thought were the most telling quotes, and uh, we tried to combine them, and uh, I mean, we did combine them, and, and that's how we ended up with the 90, 96. We could have used more, but we thought that most of the major points of slavery were covered by these quotes. Yeah.
0: And the quotes are all done in di- dialect. Now, some of the people Not, yeah, yeah. Most of the people of them spoke correct English, but uh, right. I'm assuming some of them went on to uh, uh, have more education after the war. But we'll get into uh, the lives of uh, so many of them uh, after they were freed. Uh, what did the workers ask them about slave life?
1: You know, they were given this very basic list. Uh, they wanted to know their names, their births, their uh, location of birth, and sometimes that was a very difficult question. Some people didn't know exactly where they were born, and some didn't know exactly where they were born, uh, which really points to the identity crisis that slavery uh, one of the one of the you know one of the many crises that it traumas that it created. Um, And then they asked about slave songs, and they asked about uh, games that people played, and they asked about day-to-day, everyday life. Uh, And then from there on, interviewers were encouraged to just kind of follow the answers.
0: Also, what did they think about their slaveholders, I imagine? Yeah. And did they ever think of escaping?
1: Right. There's, um, you know, there's many ways that I, at first I I looked for stories of escape, and, and I didn't find that many, there's a lot of talk about escape, but it, it was a more difficult process than one could have imagined because if you left your uh, plantation, uh, there were people called paddy rollers who who patrolled the the, the roads and um, and they had to make it all the way north. And even when they got north, for much of their lives, they they still were uh, you know liable to be caught and brought back to the south because of the so Fugitive much...
0: Slave Act.
1: Exactly, exactly. But there was so much more kind of resistance that I, I gleaned from these stories. There were stories about people who prayed silently to themselves. And there were stories about uh, one man, w- William Colbert remembers his brother, whose name was Sunday, and how he, he just refused to acknowledge pain while he was being beaten, uh, you know, and, and so many different ways you could resist. You could pray, when, and not not just pray in the fields, but there were religious services that were organized um yeah another man recalls that how hard it was to make a you know formal resistance so he remembers watching his mother being whipped and standing with his father and his father kind of put a stare on him and a, and a hold on him so that he, he his son would not lift a hand because there was really no there was nothing to benefit from that
0: so, in talking about the overwhelming fear for their lives and for the lives of their family and loved ones, you have uh, given one of your chapters the title "Trauma That Lasts Forever."
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the Emancipation Proclamation did not end the trauma of slavery for most everybody. I mean, how could it? Um, it didn't. Uh, slavery did not prepare many of them to make it out into the world they they weren't as i mentioned they weren't allowed to read or write and many of them kind of secretly learned how to do it um but you know and they didn't have many skills beyond the field so many former slaves ended up working for the their former plantate their their former plantation owner um
0: as a kind of de facto slavery after the civil war
1: very, very little, but they did it because they would at least be sheltered and they would be fed. Uh, many then many others, you know, began sharecropping, which put them in more debt than, you know, than they were in uh, worse financial financial conditions than they were when they were slaves, but at least they had their freedom. Uh, it was a very, you know, that there's a lot of talk by the people in the book about the, the violence of the KKK and um, it, it continued. One man talks about how uh, he was uh, on the street one day not working, and he was picked up for vagrancy and put into a chain gang. So the remnants of slavery uh, certainly lasted you know, through the 1930s at least, and well, well past it, but certainly into the 1930s when these people were interviewed.
0: But, but the the late 1930s were a time when many African Americans left the south for the north and to go yeah, to and, cities like new york yeah and most people were interviewed in the south they,
1: there there are a couple that they were in didn't they
0: didn't
1: go they didn't go i don't you know i, 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 I can't give you a reason of why they didn't go but i think that the sense is that they didn't um, you know they they stayed near the plantation um, and they, you know, they didn't have mobility. So it was their kids or their grandkids, that generation that started moving into the bigger cities in the 20th century. Uh,
0: had they expected reconstruction to improve their lives?
1: Oh yeah, they did. Uh, they, they thought that their world would change. They thought that, uh, they would have the, um, uh, they thought that they worked well. One man talked about how we work harder than white people, that you know, the, than the plantation owners. So, why shouldn't we you make more money? And, um, you know, obviously, that, that didn't happen.
0: And, uh, as you said, they had to then uh, endure the brutality of Jim Crow, uh, the Ku Klux yes. Klan and uh you can see from the photographs that most of them were living in extreme poverty in the in the late 1930s well i mean the depression also i'm sure was a factor but these right
1: but this this is extreme poverty uh of the rural south absolutely uh, one man has his pants being held up by a uh, a rope uh people who uh, many many people did you know men got in, in uh, started to wear suits. I don't know if they were wearing them before the picture, but you can see on some of them that their legs, their pant legs are tattered. The man on the the cover of the book, his name is Richard Toller, And he's one person that did make it to Cincinnati. And he's standing on this uh, cobblestone street wearing a suit jacket and standing so beautifully, so resiliently. He's, he's close to a hundred years old and he's got this beautiful um, gray, white gray beard and very dignified, um, and he's trying, you know, he's, he's absolutely putting on his very best face, but the experience that he had as a, as a slave is, is remarkable. He, he, he literally said, I I never had any good times. Uh, I never had any good times until I was free and he never went to school. He never learned to read. He never handled money, uh, never went to parties. And he talks about how hard eating was. And so he's carrying this, certainly not a burden, but this trauma that, that, that wasn't, you know, that, that lasts forever
0: uh some of the uh, slave narratives you have here cover full page but the majority of them are little snippets why not give us the the full page on all of them
1: you know we wanted people to read this book and um, not that they wouldn't read a full page but we wanted we wanted to go to the essence of what they said and uh, even the short ones uh, are are very beautiful I I, I, I you know, compared to poetry rather than than prose, um, because they 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 said something that was very um, eloquent in, in 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 just sometimes a sentence. The first woman, Penny Thompson, starts the book saying, "Do I remember slavery days? Yes, sir. How could I forget them?" You know, I uh, we we were so struck by just those words that that there was that we went to the next person, and it's as if they're talking to each other. They're talking about identity, and they're talking about um, Uh, day-to-day life, and the violence they saw, and the freedom that came about them. So they're not put in the book randomly. They're put in the book so that one leads to another. And just like in conversations, sometimes people say a sentence, and sometimes people talk for a while.
0: You apologize for using the N-word here, but you had no choice, because that's the word that came up in uh, a lot of these speeches.
1: Exactly. That was the the, the transcribed word was that, and we we thought a lot about changing it, but we figured we would stick with the history, that it was very important that people see the actual words that were transcribed.
0: I was surprised to learn that nearly two-thirds of the people interviewed were from Texas, not Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, or any of the other Deep South uh, states. Um, Why Texas?
1: Uh, Well— i think it's partly chance um the, the narratives have a lot of interviews from those early states that you just mentioned but it happened to be in texas that they were using a camera more but texas was a really important state because as the civil war progressed southerners moved farther south and farther west to get away from the union army and so many of them ended up in texas and it was a uh, a very difficult place to uh, to live and and as it so happens, that's where a lot of the photographs were taken.
0: Oops. We, uh, w- we're talking to my guest on a Skype connection, and um, I hope that we can uh, bring it back right away. It's his Richard K.N. Are you back? Uh, I'm here. Uh, we you lost me? you for a moment. So you, you were talking about Texas, which um, right. had the worst record of racial violence during Reconstruction. That, that came as a surprise. Are uh, it, it, we talking mostly about East Texas or all over Texas?
1: Uh, no, most of the inter- interviews were in, in East Texas. West Texas had not really been settled that much by, you know, uh, uh, you know, by the Civil War. And um, yes, uh, I think uh, part of the racial violence came by the the large uh, influx of African Americans into Texas.
0: They they went to Texas to escape. After See, the not,
1: they didn't go to Texas, but the plantation owners uh-huh. moved, uh, you know, f- farther west to to stay away from the invading Union Army.
0: Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so th- these people, well, uh, as we mentioned earlier. Um, their families could be broken up. They could be sold. Uh, they uh, they had to go wherever the plantation owner went. Uh, they had absolutely no control exactly their lives.
1: exactly. They had to be they, they were moved by the plantation or by if their if their family was sold, they were moved uh, after the sale.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We'll continue right after this. No! Any number of spirituals and gospel songs referred to uh, what had happened, uh, the the, the, uh, the changes in, in people's lives after they stopped being enslaved or when they wanted to stop being enslaved. I'm talking with uh, one of the authors of a book called uh, River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It, Interviews and Photographs of Formerly Enslaved African Americans. It's published by City Files Press as a foreword by Adam Green. And we'll get back to Richard Cahan, who uh, has done this book with Michael Williams, after just a little oh. brief request for your support for this radio station. I'm joined now by my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse.
2: Hi, Leonard. Great to be here as always. Hi, Reggie. Yes, I am here to let everyone know that, if, first of all, if you're just joining us, this is the first week of WBAI's Winter Fun Drive. So we are asking our listeners to step up and make a contribution of anything that they're comfortable with in order to keep our show and this station on the air. We, as we always like to say and point out, since it always surprises me that a lot of even our, our most consistent listeners don't seem to know this, WBAI accepts zero corporate underwriting, zero business matching, zero big dollar donors. Uh, you, you might say we're the uh, Bernie Sanders of the broadcasting world.
0: If you look at some other public broadcasters or listen to them, you hear what the equivalent is the equivalent of ads. Uh, we have chosen to remain pure. It may be may be counterproductive in some ways, but on the other hand, uh, we we're very
2: proud of the fact that we are truly listener sponsored. And the benefit that our listeners that you get every day on this show is that we get complete latitude to do any topic that we think will be interesting in the hour we don't have
0: to worry about uh, offending one of the 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 people who gives us money
2: exactly you know i would be really interested to see the look on a lot of uh program directors faces or or uh high level management's faces at a commercial station or even some uh uh, wildly successful public radio stations. If we told them we were going to do an hour on a book of photographs, this is kind of like the stuff they teach you on the first day of broadcast school that you you don't do a show about about photos. But has anyone who's been listening to this hour so far realizes uh, that this is a topic that we still need to talk, talk about, and this is a take on the history of slavery that uh, is is unique and something I certainly haven't seen before, giving voices to the people who lived it. So I said that the first piece of news was that we're in our first week of Fun Drive. The second piece and the most important piece of news I want to deliver to you right now is that the first person who goes to our website, give to WBAI.org, that's give then the number to WBAI.org, or calls our, our pledge line which is 516-620-3602 gets a free copy of River of Blood the book uh that that has been the topic of the show today that that Richards, uh, Richard Richard Kahan book. has been discussing with Leonard and it really is a gorgeous book and uh just a really Uh, an unseen piece of history that uh, that I'm sure that you're going to want to get your hands on it. Now, uh, for anyone who is not the first for our second BAI buddy and and beyond, you're going to get a free subscription to Harper's for the year. But so if this sounds like a gift you want, be sure to to make that move right now. Don't wait. Go to uh, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. And of course, be sure to mention that that pledge is in the name of Leonard Lopate at large.
0: And either way, uh, you're getting something uh, that has historical significance because Harper's has been around now for how many years? 150 years or so? That sounds about right. Uh, and, uh, and then this book, which really does bring the past back to life beautifully printed. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that a photography book is printed this this beautifully. The, The photographs just pop off the page.
2: Right. But I don't think that's necessarily something you could assume. I've certainly looked at bad reproductions in books before. That is not the case here. They really did an incredible job. And it's such a powerful way to tell this story, right? For many of us, uh, you know, certainly as a as a white kid growing up in, in New England, you know, you, you learn about slavery mostly through history books, maybe occasionally through a documentary. But there's something so powerful about, you know, the power of photography, right? To, to take you through the years into a moment that would have been lost had it not been for this kind of preservation.
0: And again, the number is f- uh, 516-620-3602 or go to our donation site, give to wbaiorg That's give, and then the number two, wbai.org. And the first person who calls and becomes a, a buddy, is A BAI
2: it? buddy for a, um, a sustaining monthly contribution of $10 a month or more will get this book, River of However
0: Blood. comfortable you are. It could be $10 a month, $15, $20. Uh, Michael Bloomberg if you're listening a million dollars a month uh, whatever you're comfortable with uh, we are we really uh, appreciate sustaining membership because it's a way it allows us to, to plan for the future and know that three months from now we're not going to suddenly be uh, dying uh, <laughs> because we don't have any money Uh but you can also just cancel it at any time as well you become a sustaining member for as long as you wish
2: but right, but they are a critical part of our uh, of our listenership of our of our support because as as you just said they let us plan but also because this is long term support it really flies in the face of the people uh you know the the various detractors that that WBAI BAI has had right up until uh, this past year uh, uh, of people who say that we aren't financially solvent or we can't uh, we can't keep our books in the black, you know.
0: Well, that and, was a reason given for the coup that we endured earlier uh, this year.
2: Exactly. The people and who don't want to us. have another coup. <laughs> the people who noticed we were off the air for a month. Exactly as we talked about earlier this week, that was the reason. But but even before the coup, that was something that the station's detractors at the at the network or at some of our affiliate stations had thrown our way. The best way to to let people know that WBAI isn't going anywhere and Leonard Lopate at large isn't going anywhere is to make that contribution. Again, the numbers five one six six two zero three six zero two or uh, you can go to the to donate on the web at give to wbai.org give then the number two wbai.org i'm going to let you get back to this conversation in a second leonard but before we do i just really want um to uh to to let people know who who have contributed that we really do appreciate it and that we we are uh, you know, we are really just here by the grace and generosity of listeners like you who step up and support the work that we do five days a week. Leonard Lopez at large, one to two p.m. So, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see. Uh, we're I'm going to let you guys get back to this fascinating conversation.
0: And I return now to Richard Kahn, uh, who is. Uh, co-author with Michael Williams of a book called River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It, Interviews and Photographs of Formerly Enslaved African Americans published by City Files Press. Uh, I assume that as people who uh, focus on photographs uh, as uh, a way of telling stories it's very important for you uh, to present these photographs in in a way that uh, that tells the story a- absolutely
1: yeah thank you so much we're, we're so pleased that we're that we're part of the uh fundraising drive
0: well uh, <laughs> it just worked out that way you were published while during a, a winter fundraising drive but we're happy that uh we can talk about this book during this drive because it is uh one of the it's the sort of thing that we do that i think few other people do or the is anybody else giving you an hour to discuss this? Book?
1: No, absolutely not. And and uh, this is a pleasure. And just the the idea of listener supported radio is very important.
0: Now, um, one of the names that comes out pops out of the story is John Lomax. Uh, yeah. Now, of course, I've as somebody who also has been a disc jockey over the course of my career. Uh, I've thought a lot about John Lomax and his son, Alan Lomax. What role did he play in all of this?
1: Well, he was the one that took the idea of interviewing slaves and he was the visionary behind creating this entire project. He worked with, um, Sterling Brown, whose title was Negro editor, which is, which is interesting. Um, and, uh, Lomax and, and Brown together, um, saw the importance of the project and it was Lomax who developed the questionnaire and and who pushed it. Now the you know, qu- he believes he, I'm sorry. No, go yeah, ahead. I was just say, he believes so much in the value of everyday people. Uh, somebody described um, uh, this project as a group of romantic nationalists, people who who really not only just talk about how great America is, but go out there and touch America and, and, and value it enough to record by, by pencil or by, you know, recordings.
0: And then Lomaxes also uh, took recording equipment down south and uh, recorded some of these people performing the music uh, of their lives. Right. now,
1: Project, uh, it wouldn't be alive today unless, it, so we, 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 we have a great debt towards them.
0: How much did these people know about the histories of their ancestors? I
1: think that they do a lot. Um, They talk very specifically about um, who was sold, and um, there's accounts of uh, people who traveled uh, who were free in the north, and they they were given papers to go back south, and they searched for their uh, loved ones during the Civil War, which was an amazingly uh, uh, heroic thing to do. Um, and and I actually in in the doing research of the book I, I I heard that there were thousands of former slaves at the end of the war who the first thing they did was they went out and they looked for family members. So the the trauma that was created by by being split up uh, can't be overstated. There's there's a man uh, John W. Fields who who talked about when he, his family was divided. Uh, when he was six years old, the the, mass, the estate had to be settled, and all, his whole family was was divided. And he talked about how there were disinterested people who literally decided where everybody was going to go. And he ends his account by saying, "I ha, uh, he, he says, I can't describe the heartbreak and horror of that separation. I was only six years old, and it was the last time I ever saw my mother for longer than one night. And here these words are being spoken by a band who's, impeccably dressed in, in front of a row of kind of uh, houses in Indiana, uh, looking th- that far back at his childhood.
0: And witnessing one's parents being auctioned off or being auctioned off oneself.
1: Yeah, the, the descriptions of the slave auctions were particularly chilling, I thought, and, and many people uh, wrote about it. Um, they, you know, they, 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 they talked about, you know, enslaved children being sold uh, from 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 the breasts of their mothers, and they remember families crying like it was a funeral, and, and the stalls that were set up for for uh, before they were sold, and the details, the details about how people checked their bodies and opened their mouths and checked their, their teeth. And, and one woman, there's also a, a little strain of humor, uh, you know, wise observations from, from in, in the book. And a woman by the name of Sarah uh, Graves uh, explained how some, some people were sold and some people were actually rented. And she said, times don't change, just the merchandise.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, there had been slave narratives published even before the Civil War. Yeah, Uh, and then books by notable writers, Zora Neale Hurston, but um, you point it, or Mr. Green points uh, out, uh, Adam Green in his his forward to the book, that most of that work, uh, the story had been told by whites, and uh, often brought in the slave owners' perspectives.
1: Right. The histories uh, that were around in the 1930s when this project was done were, were pretty much done by southern white historians who relied on slave, slave records from plantations. And um, they, they dismissed the idea of, A, they dismissed oral history like there was any value to that, and certainly they dismissed oral histories from, from, from former slaves, people who lived it. And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that now. But it really wasn't uh, Leonard. You you could probably give insight to this. It wasn't really until Studs Terkel in the '60s that oral histories were really uh, valued.
0: Yes, but what uh, have you seen Zora Neale Hurston's book?
1: Bakaroon, I have, and it's a it's a beautiful book about uh, what she thinks is the the last slave ship that that came to America after the prohibitions of slave ships, and, and the family, uh, the man in the family f- that was kidnapped in Africa, he had, it's a long account of uh, his life in Africa on the slave ship and in America.
0: You just recently did a show about a school that was opened up uh, uh, for uh, freed young black uh, men and women uh, in, in downtown Manhattan. Actually, it wound up being eight different schools. Uh, John Jay, uh, Alexander Hamilton involved in putting them together. But it was interesting that the school was created while slavery was still legal in New York State.
1: Oh, wow. That's interesting.
0: In, in fact, New York State uh, slavery wasn't really ended until the 18, late 1820s, and I think it lingered even longer.
1: Yeah, one thing that that surprised me um, was I thought the Emancipation Proclamation really ended slavery, and obviously it it was only it only legally ended slavery in the Confederate states, not in the states that were not part of the Confederacy that still continued slavery, Kentucky and uh, states like that, the border states, and that um, obviously uh, the Proclamation it may it may have been legal, but it it didn't have much effect until the to the end of the war. And even after the end of the war, many plantation owners tried to hide the fact that, that the slaves were now free, and they wanted them to go back into the fields. And, and some, one, one man talked about how he thought he could hide the fact for a couple of years uh, before, they, you know, before people would realize it. Um, I think this moment of freedom becomes a really important part of this book and this conversation.
0: And then, of course, many people were imprisoned and wound up doing the equivalent of slavery. Absolutely. Now, uh, did this program just confirm what the previous books had revealed, or did a lot of new information come out?
1: Well, I think this information was was written down, uh, but it, it certainly uh, was eye-opening to me. Uh, how, how did you feel? Did you feel like you learned from, from the account?
0: Oh, absolutely. Accounts? I was very moved by the book. That's the reason we're talking to you on the air. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think that, uh, as Jesse said— we learn about slavery through kind of political terms, the Dred Scott decision, the Confederacy, the Union, which which I've learned. I, I feel like words are really important, and I, I never called it the Union Army. I called it the United States Army. I, I consider this a, re- a rebellion. Um, uh, but, But we learn about it in political terms, and we learn about it in economic terms, the cotton and how the... South uh, was thriving and the North was depending on the cotton production. Uh, but we seldom learn about it from a human one-on-one first account, and that's what I think is the real value of this.
0: And we we hear about uh, the excesses, but uh, here we get a sense of the day-by-day things. People, uh, as you said, who were half-starved or uh, were, were worked how many hours a day 10, 15 hours? Yeah, it
1: was usually well well before well during the harvest season it was well before sunrise to you know if there was light, if there was any hint of light, twilight and dusk they were out in the fields. Uh, they worked on Saturdays, they did not work on Sundays. Um, but I think even more that the, the description of the, the food that was given to them to keep them you know uh, strong, uh, not necessarily healthy but strong. And, and the way the food was even provided in troughs uh, was, was very eye-opening
0: to me. One woman talks about uh, being living near the, the meanest owner in the country, and uh, he, uh, he obviously killed a lot of his slaves. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the authorities would come, and uh, the law, she says, uh, come out and make him bury them. He put right. them in chains and stockades, and sometimes he would buck and gag them. It, it must have been—I mean, even if you were uh, treated okay, it must have just been shocking to be a witness to some of these things.
1: You know, I don't think anyone was treated okay um, because it was all based on Does the Rush terror that? that could happen if if— if people did not work hard and if they did not follow the rules. I I was particularly um, touched by the accounts of women and how late in their pregnancy they had to stay in the fields and how they had to return to the fields so quickly that sometimes they literally wrapped their children up in swaddling and, and, and put them under a tree so that they could be near the children as they were in the fields.
0: What happened to all of the material that was collected? Was it ever published?
1: There were books published in the nineteen forties, um, uh, but they were they were very textual. Uh, the problem with many of the slave narrative books that have been published, I think, is that they they go on and on too long. These are elderly people who had their best moments in it, like any conversation. They're they're poorly edited. I don't I, I think. Um, and um, most of the material though, uh, there, there's a man by the name, of, uh, a historian by the name of George Rawick, who. Uh, who literally copied 1,800 interviews that were at the Library of Congress and made a 19-volume set uh, that he, that it's, it's in most libraries, most large libraries. It's called The American Slave, A Complete Autobiography. And he thought he was done. This was the 1970s. He thought he was done, and he was giving a speech at a small, historically black college, and somebody took him aside and said, well, have you looked at the state archives, because there's, more interviews that were never sent to Washington, and he spent the next 10 years copying those, and now the complete, arc, the complete autobiography is now, I think, 41 or 42 volumes long. But you'll see, you'll see them in most kind of serious research libraries. I, I got a chance to really look through them and add to the, to the book, um, to the accounts uh, from Northwestern University.
0: So they've been made available to historians. They have. So, and, they,
1: and the 1800s, the 1800 interviews, the original interviews are online. So anyone can see it and they can go to the Library of Congress site. They can see the actual transcribed documents. They can see the original typewriters and the, the little notes that were made.
0: So why do you think there's still so much confusion about this time? And and as I said, uh, I don't mean to pick on Rush Limbaugh, although I'm sure he can right. handle it. Uh, People like him say, "Well, it wasn't. You know, these were people who uh, were savages in Africa, and they were brought here and Christianized and fed. And it wasn't. There were some excesses, but it wasn't so terrible."
1: Yeah, yeah. I think we can all say that that's an ignorant view, Um, and I think that the reason why why this human uh, these human moments aren't more well known is it causes grief. it uh, somebody asked me once uh, what 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 was the process that you know did you transform as you were writing this book? And yes, I did transform. I think every reader will be transformed because it there's grief on a human level and there's also grief on a country societal level that that our our country um, permitted it under law uh, so if a Enslaved man or woman wanted to testify in court against a white person. He was not allowed to do that. Mm. And and we think of ourselves as, you know, having a glorious history. And as we get older and older, we're more, um, we become more knowledgeable. But this is this is perhaps the deepest, darkest chapter in American history. And it's hard to accept and it's hard to delve into and to learn about. And that's why we uh, we kept the book very simple. There's a lot of white space. there's the the words are, are are very like you said, they're 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 not very long oftentimes they're a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs. And the pictures themselves are not big and bold. They're placed kind of carefully on the page, surrounded by white and connecting to the the quotes we've because been, it's such a sensitive topic.
0: We've been hearing a lot about the wisdom of the founding fathers, and then, Of course, you realize that uh, many of them were slave owners. In fact, a number Mm -hmm. of our presidents were slave owners. So uh, this is uh, a part of uh, American history that, I guess, remains a little embarrassing. Yeah, in
1: 1969, when the Chicago A-trial was happening in Chicago, Abby Hoffman looked up at Judge Julius Hoffman, and above him were, I think it was, portraits of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and he said, why are you sitting below two slaveholders, notorious slaveholders? And at the time, he was just laughed at. Uh, It was not even part of much of the coverage. You almost have to read the daily transcripts to, to see this. And now I think we're at least learning that the question was a really valid one.
0: Were there any surprises for you as you were working on the book?
1: I think there was a surprise in every single... Uh, transcript uh, just to, to learn the first hand I think it was all surprising mm.
0: well, the the, uh, the signal is breaking up again unfortunately Oh, uh,
1: um, I, I was saying that I think there was a surprise in every transcript just the detail, the level of detail in the, in the words
0: mm. I was very moved by the book and I thank you so much for having been on our show uh, to talk about it The book is called uh, River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It, and uh, it has been edited by Richard Kahn and Michael Williams. It's published by City Files Press. It's been a great pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you. I feel the same way.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand. At WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lodge on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardTheOpinionLodge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We hope that you will join us again on Monday when Anastasia Nes- Nesvitilova and Ronan Palin will discuss their book, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance. Oh, well, there's another thing that we, uh, I'd like to alert you to. Uh, that is the, the transmitter situation here. Uh, before uh, WBAI's transmitter will be down from 7 p.m. tonight until 7 a.m. tomorrow. But don't worry. Don't panic. It's just a routine maintenance uh, and not any further shenanigans from Pacifica factions. On that note, have a great weekend. And we'll see you on Monday. And um, Jesse Lent is, has joined me again uh, because we have a few minutes here to remind you. this is the end of the first, at least for us, of the first week of our winter fund drive. Uh, we are right now still recovering from the the coup that was uh, almost brought the station down. And there are still, Jesse, there's still fights in the courts.
2: Sure, yes. In fact, um, a week from today, next Friday, Alex uh, Steinberg will be on to discuss uh, the various factions and the, the, that will be talking about that fight. But, you know, well, we'll, be, we'll be describing what happened and what we uh, can expect in the future. We'll be talking about some new updates in the way that this legal fight has been playing out in the courts. We thought we were out of the woods, but not just yet. Uh, it, you know, so this is going to be we're going to take calls and, and hopefully get some people from the West Coast on the line, too. So tune in a week from today on on uh, Valentine's Day for that. Uh, but a little
0: yeah, a little love note to WBA. Ex-
2: Exactly, a love letter to uh, to the to the factions that brought us down. Um, well, yes, um, you know one thing. I think it's really important to mention before we sign off is that uh, if this this fund drive seems uh, unending to you, uh, w- what it is is that we were uh, knocked off in the middle of our fall fund drives. So um, when we were off for a month, uh, good. Two weeks of that was time we were supposed to be on the air. So as you might imagine. So we lost all of that opportunity, uh, and now we have to make up for it. Exactly. So that's why we need you more than ever to make a contribution to this show, to this station. You can do that, as we've been saying the whole hour, uh, by going to give to WBAI.org. Give them the number to WBAI.org, or by calling 212 209 2877. If you make that call, wait, wait, no, no, no,
0: no, that's I'm sorry, it got
2: Why am I always doing you, that? You, the pledge yeah. line is 516, Leonard, 516 620 3602. I keep giving people the call in number, but if people can make the find it, uh, find their way to becoming a BAI buddy, that's someone who contributes uh, $10 or more every month to the station. Uh, the first person who does that will receive the book that Leonard has, has been talking about with Richard Kahan, All our River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It, uh, Interviews and Photographs of Formerly Enslaved African Americans. This is really uh, a very special book, and I know you're going to want to get your hands it. on it. Yeah, we we really it's kind of impossible to see these images and not be moved. Uh, so that's the first person who becomes a BAI buddy. No, we
0: don't know if somebody's already done
2: it. We we don't. Uh, I, at, at last check, no one had become a, a BAI buddy. But if someone beats you to it, you will receive a free year of Harper's. Uh, Harper's a magazine that we often go to for guests on the show. Um, but really, we just hope that you'll do it because you like this show and you like. Uh, the, the kind of deep dives we bring you here and that Leonard brings you five days a week. Uh, so, one last time, the number's 212. Five, no, it isn't. The number is 516 620 3602. I messed it up, so let me say it again. 516 620 3602. The website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, then the number two, WBAI.org. Please be sure to mention that your contribution is in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the show, thank you very much. And we'll see you on Monday.